Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, everybody, Dr. Zubin Nemanja. I have a super special guest today in the uh, you know era of COVID hysteria. This is one of the leading experts on vaccine science, infectious disease, and general rational thinking. Dr. Paul Offit is a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is a tireless advocate for science, vaccines, and children's health. And he joins me today to talk about many things, in particular, how are we responding to this COVID-19 epidemic? And is our response like an over-exuberant immune system part of uh, more damaging than the disease itself? Paul, welcome back to the show, brother. Thank you. Man, it's good to see you and hear your voice. I, are you on lockdown over there? Because we're on lockdown here in the Bay Area. Yes, lockdown. I mean, you know, restaurants are closed, bars are closed, cafes are closed. The hospital has only not only essential personnel. So if you're not on service, don't come in. It's lockdown. Man, and so how are you and your family sort of um, dealing with the lockdown? Because we're, I've got my kids in the other room doing homeschooling, basically. I've, you know, my wife is going back and forth to Stanford or working from home because she's doing radiology and they're seeing cases. And so what are you guys doing to kind of weather this? Well, first of all, our kids are adults, so they're, they're no longer in the home. So it's just me and my wife spending a lot of time together trying to avoid, you know, any sort of domestic abuse situation. So I think we're good. <laughs> it is a real, you know, people, and again, this is actually getting to the heart of what we're going to discuss. People actually are underestimating the social, psychological, and physical ramifications of what we're doing. Can you sort of tell me what your thinking is on this? No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, we have a virus that's coming to this country that no one's seen before. So the entire population is susceptible. There's not a vaccine that can create immunity. So everyone's susceptible. Um, and it has the capacity to spread and do harm. And the question is how best to prevent that. We've taken draconian measures and maybe that's what it took. But, but I, I would argue that we will look back on this situation and that we will see that there are districts or regions or countries that didn't do it exactly the way that we did it that still had a, a, the capacity to prevent spread in a significant way. I mean, do we really need to close schools? Do we really need to close all businesses? I mean, wouldn't it make sense, for example, that if a child comes into a classroom and has this infection, that we close that classroom down for a day or two while we scrub everything down and then let people come back into the school again? I mean, which is pretty much what the CDC actually has recommended. Couldn't you do then the same thing with businesses? The other thing, just one, one point is that, this is a virus that primarily is going to kill people who are older and also have comorbidities, you know, chronic uh, lung disease, chronic heart disease, hypertension, et cetera. So you know who really the group is that's going to die. So that, that group then should stay home. Just weather this out for the next few weeks or a couple of months or whatever it takes. Those people should stay home. I think anybody who has a mild respiratory illness or moderate respiratory illness should stay home. And, and, any, and, and the, the family that's in contact with them should stay home. Do that, and, and, and then uh, obviously anybody who, who is older should limit any contact that they have with, with crowds and, and just do more sensible things. I just feel like 
by doing what we're doing, there will be a lot of unanticipated consequences, which could be dire. I mean, people, I think businesses will likely close down. I think people will lose jobs. People could become homeless. It's, there'll be a ripple effect to this that will be very damaging. Right now we have roughly 75 or so deaths in the United States, somewhere in that, that range. No, no, I'm sorry, it's 87 deaths. As of today, which is March 17th, I think it's 87 deaths, which is, is obviously any death is, is, is bad. But keep in mind the fact that the CDC estimates that as of March 7th, we've had between 22 and 52,000 deaths from influenza. Uh, you know, and, and there are thousands of, of children who've died of respiratory syncytial virus in this country. So, it, which is not to say if you can't prevent it, prevent it. But I just wonder at what cost we're ultimately preventing this. Yeah, and I think, uh, so there's a lot to talk about here. And I think um, you kind of stirred the pot a little bit on Facebook by making a post that sort of spelled some of this out. And it got my attention because it said a lot of the things that I have been trying to weave into what I've been saying in terms of the messaging on this. And it's this. The damage that we can cause from our response to something that is a bit unknown, it can be more exuberant than the disease itself. Now you can do, we, we'll talk about comparisons to influenza and RSV, we can talk about those things. We can talk about the overwhelm of the healthcare system. We can talk about the effectiveness of social distancing and the draconian measures. We can look at other countries and we can have that discussion and we will. But I think in the short run, we need to think about what's driving the fear and the panic here, which is so harmful. Everywhere you look on the news, it's coronavirus. And everywhere, you, you know, they've canceled sports, they've canceled events, and, and some of that's very appropriate. But the thing is, it's creating a sense of anxiety and panic that is starting to breed real problems. Yesterday when I went to the grocery store, because suddenly they announced we're on lockdown, it was pretty chaotic. If you want to create a scene where people are getting infected, make a, you know, suddenly announce a lockdown and have a run on the grocery stores where everyone's bumping into each other for eggs. So these kind of things have untoward consequences as well. Now the rational approach of let's focus on people most at risk, let's have targeted measures. Again, we have no, we have no precedent really for how to make this unfold. And we can look at other countries, what Singapore and Korea are doing. But one of the things you mentioned in your post that I thought, and again, it was interesting because you're a bastion of science, reason, and a rational approach to the world. You've done it, you've talked about it in your books, you've talked about it with your work on vaccines. The response to your post was an exuberant, oh my God, you're not panicking enough, Paul. Like, what are you doing? You're causing harm here. And it's because you said things like, the reason we fear this virus, there's three good reasons to fear, generate true emotional fear around a virus. One is it kills children preferentially. This one doesn't. Uh, another is it causes disfiguring permanent harm. With the exception of scarring of lung disease in patients at high risk, this one doesn't. The third is it kills the majority of people that it infects. Rabies is a good example. By the way, smallpox is a good example of disfiguring, right? And um, polio, a good example of affecting children, like really scary. And then killing a bunch of people, rabies. This one does none of those things, and yet we have upended uh, the entire social and economic fabric of this country uh, to combat it. Now, maybe that's the right answer, but what if we're actually doing more harm than good? And these are the discussions that we need to have, especially when people are losing their minds. So I'm curious to bounce that back to you and see what your thoughts are. Well, see, what, what people will say, it's fear of the unknown. 
Mm. That COVID-19 is not a word we've ever heard before. And although coronaviruses, human coronaviruses, we've known about since the early 1960s, there are four human coronaviruses, I'd say 15 to 20% of the children who come into our hospital every year with respiratory symptoms will have one of those coronaviruses. This is a novel coronavirus. And, and really, frankly, it's a bat coronavirus. It's, it's 96% bat coronavirus. So we don't know a lot about how it will spread in the human population, but we do know a lot. I mean, people say, you know, we, we, there's just so much we don't know, but we do know many things. One is that China and South Korea have largely eliminated this virus. Now, I am certain that there are millions and millions of people in China and South Korea who are still not immune to that virus, mm. meaning they don't have antibodies circulating in their bloodstream that that makes them protective. So there's still large swaths of that population that are susceptible to that virus, yet we stopped it, which makes me think it's not a purely respiratory spread virus because you can't stop a virus that is purely respiratory. We can't stop influenza. I mean, if you look at influenza sweeping across this country every year, one thing you could look at actually is to see whether these these draconian quarantine or the self-quarantining that we're doing has had an effect on influenza spread. It really hasn't because there is no stopping a virus that's easily spread by the respiratory, wait, 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 which wait. tells me that there, there has to be a fecal oral component to this. Oh, that, okay, that's really interesting. Nobody's talking about this. So the fact that these draconian measures actually haven't slowed or stopped the spread of influenza, but it has slowed or stop the spread of COVID-19 in the countries where these measures have taken place. So could, like you said, could there be a fecal oral? Could it be another thing or more fomite based as opposed to respiratory droplet uh, purely? So elaborate on that. This is fascinating to me. So what it looks like to me, at least in part, is look at a virus like norovirus, which is an enteric virus. Um, where do you see outbreaks of norovirus? You see it on cruise ships, you see it in nursing homes, you see it regionally. That is somewhat what's going on here. The other thing is people, I think, tend to sense correctly what they should do. So now we're talking a lot about cleaning surfaces, we're talking a lot about hand washing. That's more what you see with an enteric spread. This virus, frankly, I think, may in the end be more like polio and its spread than influenza because we can stop it. That's very reassuring. And so um, I do think we know a lot. And so we keep saying, because we don't know anything, because there's so much still to know, therefore we have to shut down everything, I don't think is exactly right. And, and I'm not saying that, that, that a lot of the measures that we aren't imparting are important to do. And I think Dr. Fauci certainly has led the charge on this. I just think we are scaring people to death. I mean, when I went to the, the grocery store the other day near here, there was a woman who was a little older than me who was shaken. And I went up to her and I said, are you okay? And she said, you know, I'm uh, live alone and I need to get groceries. And she just felt that by walking into that grocery store, she was gonna die. That, that's what we've done to people. We've said, you're so much more likely to die from this virus that, you know, that you should be scared to death. And we're trying to keep people in their homes by doing it that way. And I think we're creating a lot of anxiety and in some ways maybe doing more harm than, than good by doing that. <laughs> This is such a huge issue, and it's something that we've been trying to talk about on this show, this idea of creating this general panic. When you're right, we do know quite a bit, and we're looking at people that are successful in controlling it. So one of the questions is, you know, you talk a little bit about the precautionary principle. What is that, and how does it apply to this? So a precautionary principle means you exercise caution to avoid harm. So for example, if there's a plasticizer in a toy that you think might be harmful, you take it out. That's not going to, it, it may, help people, it certainly won't hurt people. Taking a plasticizer out of a toy will never hurt people. Here what we're doing is we're, we're, we are creating harm and therefore the, that's not the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle means you exercise caution to avoid harm. If you're causing harm, that's not the precautionary principle anymore. And I just, I just wish there was 
a more rational and thoughtful way of going about this so that we didn't completely shut down our way of life because th this will have, I, I, I'm certain that this will drive us into a recession and a deep one likely in the next few months. And, and, and people will be hurt by that. Businesses will be hurt by that. Workers will be hurt by that. You know, uh, the Trump administration is trying to bail us all out of that with this $860 billion program to put money back in people's pockets. But if they're scared to walk out of their house, they're not gonna be spending money. So it's not gonna, not gonna help. It's just, I just, I think Dr. Fauci and the public health community have wanted to make sure we understood the seriousness of this. We understand the seriousness of this. That's not the problem. We have 24-hour news cycle that has coronavirus all the time. You know, you've scared people. Don't worry about that. Let's just try and figure out some way that we cannot completely shut ourselves down and still save lives. And I, I have to believe that's possible. So this idea of doing more harm than we're actually helping with this precautions that are, that are happening uh, is an important one because again, in many ways, this is a regressive tax on people. So it's a pr preferentially affecting the poor, the people who are working very hard to make ends meet, the, the small businesses that have a lot of uh, burn rate and a lot of maybe debt that they're gonna default on. And you are creating long-term harm economically, psychologically. And I, I have this saying that uh, money is life for many people. So in many ways, money is healthcare, especially in this country where we don't, where we, you know, medicalize our social problems. It, it really is uh, a, a, a direct harm that we can do. And so we really need good evidence that we're actually operating under precautionary principle or we're having a good benefit. Now, the idea that this is actually spread in a way that's more fomite-based or more fecal-oral or more like polio is a fascinating thing that has not been discussed very much. So it'd be interesting to see how the epidemiology bears that out. You're looking at the Chinese data and South Koreans where they really have, because uh, they don't have herd immunity yet. Not everyone's been infected unless we're underestimating the prevalence of infection, right? Do you think right. we are? Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think, I, and you could make the argument actually that when you shut down schools, you know, in some ways, you know, children are not going to be children will will suffer these these infections, but usually they have an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection after which they're immune. You now have this sort of growing herd immunity in those children, which in many ways will protect their grandparents more so than just sending them home and having them hang out with their grandparents because they're not in school anymore. You know, I, I work with a virus called rotavirus for 25 years and was fortunate enough to participate with a team that created that vaccine. Um, rotavirus is, although it's an intestinal infection and everybody assumes it's spread by the fecal oral route, that's actually not true. It's spread by the respiratory route and it would have to be because everybody in this country and everybody in this world is infected with rotavirus by the time under five. Well, if that's true, and it is true, then that has to be a respiratory component. And in fact, rotavirus is detected in the upper respiratory tract. When I was first starting in, in studying rotavirus, there was an older physician from India who came up to me when I was talking about the fecal oral route. He said, if everybody's infected by age five, independent of the level of sanitation in the, in the country or hygiene in the home, you can assume it's a respiratory component. And he was right. Wow, that's really interesting. So, so why vaccinate then against rotavirus, just for people who don't understand that? If everybody's well, so, going to get so, it anyways, you're going to have herd immunity. Why bother? Well, because because in the world, rotavirus kills about 2,000 children a day. <laughs> um, if you can avoid that, that's a value. In the United States, it killed about 60 children a year. But again, if you can avoid those deaths and avoid all the hospitalizations that were caused by the dehydration from that virus, 
then then do it. And if you can do it safely, then do it. So put so that that's an interesting segue into putting into perspective the deaths that are happening. So the global deaths from COVID nineteen, and we're still in an early phase, right? So that it'll go up. But what what are they now? Roughly twelve, thirteen thousand something, as of March seventeenth. For deaths, yeah. For deaths, and and U.S. is around uh, eighty-seven or eighty-seven. Something. So what about influenza, RSV, those kind of things? All right. So so influenza will typically kill around 20, 30,000 people U.S. every year and obviously hundreds of thousands in the world. If you look at, at this, the swine flu pandemic, for example, in 2009, that was a vac- that was a, a pandemic for which we actually had an adva- a vaccine in advance if it's coming. That killed a little over 200,000 people in the world mm. and killed about 12,000 people alone in the United States, just that virus. There was also epidemic spread of a different virus, but there was just that virus. 12,000 people died of that virus. And what's interesting about that virus, and people should take note, if you look at, at, at who died, of those over 65, that accounted for 20% of the deaths. Most of those deaths actually were in healthier, younger people. So, so here you have the advantage actually of knowing that th- this virus has a predilection to kill those who are older with other health problems. That gives you a chance to target a, a, a select group. And I just think we may be able to do this in a more rational way than we're doing it now. Man, so when, when I, I was obviously in full clinical practice during H1N1 epidemic, I saw young people who had no other medical problems, maybe a little asthma, maybe not even that, dying, ventilated in the ICU. Uh, And it was tragic. And yet the level of hysteria and panic and, you know, and I think partially there's a, there is a, this fear of unknown. There's a fear of, oh, it came out of China and some bat and people freak out because bats, there were, there was a whole series of fictional books called, you know, the passage series by an author named Cronin about a bat related virus that turned people into vampires. I mean, this is a primal human fear, right? Of There's a xenophobic component. There's a, there's a zoonotic, zoonotic Phobic, phobic, I don't know what the language around that is, of the bats, uh, there's a bataphobic component. So it, it has this primal emotional thing, whereas the swine flu, it's like, well, pigs, you know, the Charlotte's web, <laughs> you know, it's a very different thing. The emotional component of this is so, uh, is so different, but if you look at it rationally, like you said, now we have a virus that preference, now the pushback, Paul, uh, and I think maybe this is appropriate, maybe it's not, People are seeing young people too getting infected. So there's, you know, 35 year olds, there's, you know, getting sick. Healthcare professionals in particular seems to be bearing the brunt of the severe illness because maybe they're getting higher inoculums. It's not clear. And again, the data's still early. What's your thinking on that? Are we just exaggerating the risk of that or is it a real risk, but it's still relatively small compared to the population at stake? Yeah, yeah it's a, it, it, that's a great question. I do think. I think there is a respiratory component to this. And I think what you said earlier is exactly right. I think you either need closer contact or you need a higher burden of virus that you're initially infected with. So, because that's why it is stoppable. I mean, that is why we can stop this. So it's not like measles, which is an airspace disease. I mean, the minute that you, if you're infected with measles, if somebody just walks into the room where you've been mm. in the past two hours, they can get it. That's not this virus. This right. is a stoppable virus. So I just think we can be more uh, specific, more more targeted in our ability to to stop that. But you're right. I mean, I, I also think we really have to crack down on people to say, um, if you're mildly ill or ill, stay home. And, and I think what we're doing is we don't trust people to do that. Mm. But because we don't trust them to do that, we're saying, okay, everybody stays home. Mm. And, and by doing that, we will have a massive uh, 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 um, hit on, on people's ability to have a livelihood. And, and most people live paycheck to paycheck. And it's just, 
I think what we're doing, in, in, because we don't trust people to stay home when they're sick, is we're basically making them stay home, period. Mm. So this is, a, th- again, this is a, a big social engineering experiment that we're doing on a mass scale, and we have no idea really what's gonna happen. And again, to compare us culturally to Italy or South Korea or China is an invalid comparison. How is Italy different? They have older population, right? So we're seeing, what what was it, 25% of people in uh, Italy are over the age of 65. Here it's more like 16%. So yes, the outcomes are gonna be different there. You're gonna have more mortality, more morbidity. And I think the biggest problem in this disease so far from the healthcare standpoint has been the morbidity component, needing ventilators, prolonged ventilation, uh, the scarring and and potential lung damage occurs afterwards. But it's mostly in in a vulnerable population. Um, how how is, do you think is the U.S. different and what do you think we can do differently then in light of those differences compared to the Italian experience? Because the first pushback you'll get, Paul, and you have is, well, but look at Italy. Here, I'm an Italian doctor. Or I'm an it- Italian citizen. And here's what's going on here. Everything's falling apart. The system is collapsing. Healthcare professionals are getting sick. Uh, 3,000 people have died. The, the world is ending. And honestly, the emotional reaction to that is, oh my God, we got to do something right now. I mean, how are you, how are you thinking about this? Right. So, so what's the difference? You have Italy, South Korea, and France all have roughly the same population, about 60 million people. Yet Italy is where this is, is, is there are far more deaths. I think a couple of reasons. One is that it is an older population. I mean, the average age there is, is almost 10 years older than the average age here, and they have a significant larger percentage of the population that's over 65. But I think the other reason is, is look at where people are dying. They're primarily dying in northern Italy. That's that's largely a sort of rural setting where there are sort of scattered towns. It's not, it's not, this is not as big of an issue in Rome as it is in Milan and the areas around Milan. And I think that that the healthcare system in that area is much sparser, um, much less uh, geared toward intensive care than it is in a big city in the South like Rome. So I think that's also part of it because there's nothing specific about Italian people that should make them more susceptible than someone who's French or Spanish, et cetera. So I think that's probably, that's, that's what everybody points to is this is what we don't wanna have happen here. But I think that's not gonna happen here. I think what's gonna happen here is very similar to what's happening in France, for example, or um, or hopefully South Korea. I mean, I think we I think we we were late to get testing, and I think that that's what hurt us at the population level. It really would have helped us to know who was sick and who wasn't sick at the beginning. That's where South Korea was way ahead of us, and that's where we got hurt. From the individual level, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, if I have a respiratory infection, stay home. Mm. Independent. I, I don't need to find out whether I have COVID nineteen or not. Stay home. Mm. Um, because I think, frankly, from an individual level, if somebody gets their test and they find out that they have influenza, they'll be relieved as compared to if they have COVID-19, where they are going to assume they're going to die no matter how old they are. Then mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of that makes sense. And again, the question of like, if you infected, so I, I heard some talk about Great Britain's response. So have, are you familiar with their response at all? What's going on with them? Because they're talking about even like allowing young people to get infected and develop herd immunity and, and so on and so forth. This, this is, again, some of the rumor mill online. What, what, have you heard anything about any of this? Yeah, so I've heard the same rumor. I've read the same rumor. I, I think that um, at some level you can understand the thinking, which is that it's it's not something young people die from. It's something young people get mildly infected with or have an asymptomatic infection. Therefore, they get immunity. Therefore, they sort of put a moat around those older people who are going to be more susceptible to the to, to severe forms of the disease. That does make some sense. I think we don't have that that feeling here. We feel like we are trying to prevent any infection because we think any infection at any age could then be something that transmits. Transmitted to someone who's older. Again, I, I, 
think that we will look back on this and there will be regions in, in our country that handle this differently than other regions. And we'll see to what extent that made a difference. Right now, we're just, just taking the full-blown, everybody-stay-home approach, shut down businesses, shut down sports, shut down our entire way of life because we don't trust you not to, to infect somebody else. And I, there will be a, an enormous price to pay from this. And I just wonder whether we really could have had achieved roughly the same end without paying that big of a price. Mm. I'm just asking. I mean, I know that when I wrote that on uh, my Facebook page, I got a lot of negative comments, with the exception of anti-vaccine folks who loved it. They loved my comment. Um, they thought that was the first time I've ever taken an anti-public health stance, but it really wasn't anti-public health. I was just trying to make a more surgical argument for how we could do this. You know, Paul, I, so I loved, I really enjoyed reading that Facebook post because I liked watching the comments. And it was, it was exactly that. A lot of people in the rationalist community, right, who, by the way, I find to be a tad dogmatic at times and a little bit um, in their own headspace, right? That's why I kind of like you because your recent book, has it come out yet, by the way? April. April. And I'm going through it and it's it's a beautiful treatment on overtreatment and the things that we do that don't work. And I'll tell you, you are not a dogmatic, do everything kind of guy. And if you were, we wouldn't be buddies because I'm not either. So we actually share something <laughs> with the anti-vax community in the sense that uh, you don't just take everything at face value. You look at the science behind it. Now, they don't do that. They just don't take anything at face value. Uh, so it's very different. But yeah, it was interesting. So the response, the negative response to you, I think, came from a lot of people who are, first of all, maybe connected to the medical community. And I can understand that emotionally because they're worried about their own tribe, which I am too. So I'm seeing my friends at Stanford getting overwhelmed, a shortage of beds. And some of it, Paul, is because People are showing up because they're panicked. They're coming to the ER with coughs and sniffles. They're demanding to be seen. They're refusing to do the telehealth or the phone thing. And it's clogging up the works and that's creating overload. I, I, I speculated on a live show a while back when I was ranting about this and I said, you know what? What if we never figured out what was happening? The thing, the Chinese covered it up. It actually spread to the US, rippled through our healthcare system as a mysterious viral illness. We never figured it out. It would kill a bunch of people, mostly elderly and people with chronic disease. But life would continue, people would develop immunity, and we would be none the wiser for it. And instead, what's happened is we know a lot, and now the question is, is our own immune system as a society overreacting and causing the same kind of damage that a cytokine storm might do? So I'm curious your thoughts on this. No, that's good. <laughs> that, that our reaction to this is the cytokine storm of population health. That's good. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, it's certainly true in the early studies decades ago looking at coronaviruses, human coronaviruses, that there is so-called homotypic immunity, meaning that if you're infected with one type of, of coronavirus, you will then not be infected with that type again. But there's not heterotypic immunity, meaning you won't be, you will still be susceptible to those other types of corona, human coronavirus. Here you have you have SARS, which was basically a one-year deal, right? Caused roughly uh, eight, so, so severe acute respiratory syndrome. That was a novel coronavirus that caused 8,000 cases and 800 deaths, but in this country was fewer than 10 cases, no deaths. MERS was a, another novel coronavirus, caused 2,500 cases in the world, 1,000 deaths, again, fewer than 10 cases, no deaths in this country, again, a one-year phenomenon. Now, this virus is clearly spread much more easily than those two. It's clearly causing a lot of destruction in this country, and we're doing our best to try and contain it. Um, I'm not so sure it comes back next year or the year after that. We'll, we'll see. Uh, it, it's, it is a bat virus, so it's not it's not like flu. I mean, flu 
although a bird virus, is now very well adapted to growth in the human population. That's not this virus yet, so I'm not so sure it continues to come back as everybody's worried about. We'll see, but in the meantime, um, I think that that it's likely that if you get immunity to this virus, you're probably going to be immune for years afterwards. Mm. Maybe not decades, but years. Interesting. And so, getting so going back to this effect on the healthcare community, because I get messages, I'm sure you do too, from frontline healthcare professionals who are beside themselves. So they're scared of getting it because they're victims of this panic as well. And they're seeing cases, they're not getting good support, they don't have enough PPE, we don't quite understand what the right, so CDC says always, you know, maybe airborne precautions, maybe droplet precautions, it kind of changes, nobody, the Canadians say something different, WHOs, so they're kind of, and they're getting all these patients now, right? Some of whom are very sick, and some of whom have nothing, they should, shouldn't even be there. What can would these draconian measures that we're doing now help our colleagues on the front lines? Or in, in other words, are we being insensitive to that potential collapse of the health system by not doing these everything possible and taking the economic risk and the social risk and the psychological risk? Or again, are we doing all that and it's not really gonna offload that? You know, I mean, how, how are you thinking about this? Because this is something I struggle with. Yeah, no, me too. I, and I think it's that balance. I mean, something you said earlier that I worried about right at the beginning of this is that you scared people. So now when they have even a mild respiratory s s uh, symptom, they when Mike Pence says, you know, if you if you want to be tested, go ask your doctor. I mean, that wasn't a a a, 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 a clover leaf to the to the healthcare profession. I mean, so now people are you know are running to their doctors. They want to get tested. I mean, our hospital, you know, and others, I'm sure, are overwhelmed with this in many ways. And so so that's what worried me. So when you do that, then when you use your healthcare system to handle that, the concern, the angst that you've created with this, that you're pushing aside those other people in the emergency department who really do need your care because you've overwhelmed your, your, your emergency. So, so I think that's another sort of unanticipated side effect of scaring the hell out of people with this. Um, we'll see. The other thing is, is the vaccine, which hopefully we'll get to at some point, but mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about that too. Oh, let's do that. So, well, first I wanna ask one quick question. I also get yelled at online a lot by uh, people, and this is a YouTube phenomenon because people feel like they're all experts on YouTube. Uh, you're telling people not to wear masks in public unless they're sick themselves or immunocompromised, but in China and South Korea, they're required to wear masks if they go in public. What's the disconnect here? Aren't you harming people? Aren't masks helpful? What are you, what's your thinking on that? You know, the question is, do masks work? I mean, yeah. if you wear an N95 respirator, which is to say something that is fits tightly around your nose and mouth so that you're not going to inhale those droplets which potentially contain a virus or exhale those, um, that's one thing, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about these sort of rectangular surgical masks that you can breathe in and out of the sides of and breathe out, you know, from the sides of. So you may also, you, have, you may have the false sense that you're protecting yourself or protecting others, especially protecting others. That's what will worry me the most, that you are wearing this because you're thinking, okay, I have respiratory symptoms, but if I wear this mask, now I'm not gonna be protecting, now I'm not gonna be infecting others. If you have respiratory symptoms, stay home. Mm -hmm. and, and also just in terms of the vulnerable populations, nobody visits nursing homes. I mean, really cut down on that. I mean, or nobody, you know, just, just people, areas where there are large quantities of the vulnerable population should have re severe restrictions about sort of entrance into those areas. I mean, that, that nursing home in Washington mm. was, you know, accounted for like half the initial deaths. You know, and, and I worry too, Paul, because what we're doing culturally, you know, there were these great old episodes of The Simpsons where Homer's dad lives in a like assisted living 
And he's just so excited when anyone comes to visit him because he's been forgotten. And now we're telling people, and I, and I know why we have to do it, we're telling people don't visit your elders in the nursing home. And I hope that that's a cultural conditioning we can undo pretty quick after this is done because that's so harmful. Loneliness and isolation are the biggest problems. I would almost wanna just be comfort care. If no one would see me, I would rather die of coronavirus if I, if I were in that position because we're social creatures. So that's just a caveat to this, but you're absolutely right. Those are the vulnerable population. And the other thing nobody's really talking about, so this, this was a phenomenon in Washington State from colleagues I've had up there, is having end of life discussions. So if you're 85 and you're infected with COVID and you're about to be intubated for that, is that something you want? When your mortality is 20%, your morbidity is super high, you're gonna maybe have long-term lung issues, quality of life issues. Should we be having these conversations? To also, it's a resource issue and it's a suffering issue, you know, and that those are things that we're not talking about at all. Um, now to the vaccine, unless you have any comments on that stuff, any thoughts on no, that? No, no, I think that that's, it'd be also interesting to look at, for example, I know Jefferson, which is just a few blocks from where I'm living now, Jefferson Hospital has sort of canceled all elective transplants, you know, it, it, you know, with live, you know, that if it's not an immediate problem that they can wait for, for a day or two or a week or two and they'll see, but um, it's there, there, we'll see when this story is written, what the collateral damage was. And, and I think, I hope that we're um, open-minded enough and skeptical about looking at the way that we do things that we'll look back and see what did we learn from this so that we can do it differently next time. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that we shouldn't, we should always be skeptical of anything that we're doing um, because we otherwise will never be doing it better in the future. Yeah, and I, honestly, that's your that's your upcoming book, which I'm really excited to dig in because this is a big uh, uh, soapbox of mine that a lot of what we do in medicine is harmful, unhelpful, expensive, and doesn't help. And, and again, it gets to the current crisis. Like, are we creating more trouble and more problems and more side effects and more iatrogenesis by what we're doing? Uh, now, again, uh, this is a tough thing for me too, because my colleagues on the front lines that are, uh, including my wife behind us, that are seeing this clog up. Where is she? There she is. Um, seeing this- uh, God bless you. <laughs> it takes a special kind of patience to be married to me, believe it. Um, seeing it really just uh, back up the healthcare system is very tough. And and so I get these messages from people on the front lines who are just, they're beside themselves. Um, and I'm very sensitive to that. So that, that all being said, let's cut to how do, is, what are the pitfalls? Now I had Peter Hotez on the show talking about his work on SARS-2 coronavirus vaccine. Uh, what, what, talk about the vaccine. Just hit me with your understanding and where you think this is going and uh, let's go from there. So, so um, as a general rule, when you make a viral vaccine, you try and induce an immune response that prevents the virus from binding to a cell. Um, the coronavirus has a protein on its surface, so-called glycoprotein, which is responsible for that binding. Therefore, all the um, efforts to make a vaccine are directed at making antibodies against that virus binding protein the glycoprotein. There are several approaches. One is Moderna's approach, which is now happening in Seattle or, or they're, they're at, I think, the Northern California Kaiser Permanente is now doing human trials of this Moderna product. Moderna is a, is a messenger RNA. So you inject the person with messenger RNA that then converts to the protein that then induces the immune response. So that's one approach. Ah. The other approach is a DNA vaccine. So you inject, and Novio is doing that. 
um, you inject with the DNA that 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 is the gene that codes for that protein. The DNA is then converted to messenger RNA, which is then translated to a protein that then induces an immune response. Or you give the protein itself, which is what Sanofi was doing, and I think what Peter Hotez was doing, which is that you use whatever expression system you want to essentially create the protein. And then usually that protein is adjuvanted with one adjuvant or another, all for the purpose of inducing an antibody response against this protein. And the and the adjuvant is a, an immune enhancer, right? So it's something that it provokes a little more immune response. Right, that enables you to give either lesser quantities of the antigen or fewer doses. The, the, the protein, um, this glycoprotein binds to something called ACE, A-C-E, which is an angiotensin converting enzyme. Um, I think that, that, I think that if you're going to launch this, start testing this vaccine, you have to damn well make sure it's safe. Because remember the people that are now getting this vaccine in Seattle um, are unlikely to die from this virus. I mean, they're, they're young, healthy people. Mm. So you have to, I just worry that you would in any sense rush this, that you wouldn't do extensive animal model testing, that you wouldn't then do extensive phase one uh, safety and immunogenicity testing before you ever get to an efficacy test. I think people got fooled by Ebola. When Ebola, the Ebola outbreak happened in West Africa, um, we had already spent 20 years making an Ebola vaccine. I mean, we, we had done extensive animal model testing. We'd done extensive phase one and phase two testing. We knew the safety data. We knew the efficacy data in people. And then when that outbreak occurred, that vaccine was occurred in West Africa. That vaccine was in the bowels and ready to go for a phase three test, which is to say an efficacy test, which is to say, does it work? Um, we're not near that here. And I think when Tony Fauci initially said, this is gonna be 12 to 18 months, he was right. But yet we're still sort of, rolling it out here, and I worry that people will line up to try and get get a product that I think has not yet reached a level of testing that it should reach, remembering that the people who are going to be getting this vaccine are very unlikely to, to suffer seriously from this virus, so you better make sure it's safe before you put it into them. That See, this is, this is exactly the conversation with vaccine experts we need to be having because people don't understand how vaccines are developed and, and the amount of rigor involved. It is more difficult to get a vaccine, say, approved than a small molecule or a medical device or something like that for this reason, because you are giving it to healthy people who are at generally low risk, so it better be really, really, really safe. And I think anti-vaccine cult members need to hear that message too, that we take this very, very, very seriously. Now, one piece of that that Peter Hotez brought up was this idea of immune enhancement with respiratory viral vaccines like RSV. What's your thinking? Can you describe that to us and, and tell me what you think about that with this coronavirus? Right. So in the 1960s, there was an attempt to make a respiratory syncytial virus vaccine. That's a virus that uh, infects everybody. It's a respiratory virus, but it primarily kills the young, especially prematures, but primarily kills children in the first couple of years of life. And we'll have a few thousand deaths every year from this virus. The way that they made that vaccine, and it was out of NIH with Bob Chanik's lab was they took the virus, killed it, and then inoculated people with a whole killed virus. What they found was that when then children were naturally exposed to the circulating virus, the natural virus, so-called wild type virus, they actually did worse if they got the vaccine than if they didn't get the vaccine. 
That's one example. Another example was there was a whole killed measles virus that was introduced in this country in 1963. That too, when you were then exposed to the natural virus, actually you had a worse syndrome, more likely to get pneumonia than if you had never gotten that vaccine. That's a bad sign. And dengue is another example, the so-called Dengvaxia vaccine that's made by uh, Sanofi Pasteur in, in children who have never been exposed to the virus before. You actually had the so-called facilitated antibody entrance. So in other words, that, that you develop these sort of binding antibodies so that when you then were infected with the, the a, a different, when you were infected with actual wild type dengue, natural dengue, that actually those antibodies facilitated virus entry into cells and made you worse. So there's three examples right there of so-called immune enhancement. And if there's animal, as Peter said, and thank, I'm glad he was willing to come on your show and, and say that that was an issue. Yeah. Um, because it's important to know that. I think it's important for the public to know that, that there may be issues with immune enhancement, which is to say that if you get the vaccine and then you get the, uh, are exposed to the wild type or natural virus, that there may be um, a worsened response and if you've never gotten the vaccine, which is why I think you have to have extensive animal model testing and very slowly move forward on sort of safety testing, safety first. I mean, safety, 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 and then immunogenicity testing. But maybe I'm just a bad sport. I mean, I worked on a rotavirus vaccine for 26 years before that became a vaccine. And that's about average for how long it takes to make a vaccine. And when Tony, Dr. Fauci says, you know, 12 to 18 months, I mean, that is ridiculously optimistic. And now we're already, you know, putting this virus, this vaccine to people. I just, I just worry about this a little bit. I, I, yeah, I like, I like too that Paul, you're able to put your biases out on the table and go, look, I busted my ass for 26 years. <laughs> it's not this. fair. It's not fair. You can't no, come up see, with what a- happens, It's like people are so scared of this virus now. And at some levels, especially for a healthy person, unrealistically scared, that they're willing to go to take something that may not have been tested as much as you would have liked it to have been tested. Right. Tell, tell me about the rotavi- the early rotavirus vaccine that caused, was associated with intussusception. What was the deal with that? We're talking about safety of, of, of vaccines. Let's, let's dig into that a little since that's your expertise. Right, so there was a vaccine that came onto the market in the United States in 1998. It was on the market for about 10 months. It was called RotaShield. Mm. Um, it was um, a product of what was then Wyeth Laboratories. Um, and it was a rare cause of intussusception. Intussusception happens when you're, uh, the intestine sort of telescopes into itself, gets stuck, and then that can be a serious medical problem. It can allow for the entrance of bacteria into the bloodstream that cause sepsis. It can cause major bleeding, i.e. hemorrhage, that can be fatal. Um, and it, it's, it depends on what uh, what uh, article, what studies you looked at at the time, but somewhere between one in 10,000, one in 30,000 people who got that vaccine um, suffered that. Mm-hmm. Now, if you looked on, on the whole, I mean, if, if we vaccinated the entire population in this country with that vaccine, still you would probably be five to 10 times more likely even in this country to have died from rotavirus than to have died from the rotavirus vaccine, but we were not willing to accept any sort of side of, a major side effect from a vaccine like rotavirus. And so seven years passed and then um, a vaccine that we made at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and then two years after that, another vaccine that was created by researchers at Children's in Cincinnati came and, and, and interestingly also are both are very rare causes of intussusception. So all three vaccines were rare causes. These two are much less commonly a cause of interception than the first one. But what this teaches you after all this is that natural rotavirus is also a rare cause of interception. That's what we've learned in all this. That's why all three different sort of biological vaccines did that. And so what's happened to the, in, in, in the, the uh, now that we basically replaced natural virus with vaccine virus, what's happened to the incidence of interception in the United States? It stayed about the same. So 
Um, that's the final yeah, yeah, story. Yeah, because the net effect of, you know, whether you're infected with well-type rotavirus or whether you've had the vaccine, the net effect, if it is a slight increase in intussusception is going to be is going to wash out as the same. Do you think that's what's happening with Guillain-Barre and flu vaccination? So, yeah. Uh, so, so that's just different. That's different. Uh, is it different? It, it, different it, scenario. Considering this, in this, in this, in this respect, I think that that wild-type rotavirus and rotavirus vaccines are probably equally capable of of causing an inception, which is to say, extremely rarely. Yeah. Um, Wild-type influenza virus is 17 times more likely to cause Guillain-Barre syndrome than, than back the vaccine. Okay. Therefore, the vaccine, thinking about it that way, protects against Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yeah, that, and that actually was my uh, statistical understanding of it. I actually did a show on that because there was a panic. Las Vegas posted something about a guy who got Guillain-Barre associated with vaccination temporarily. And the, the idea that, well, actually, wild-type flu, getting influenza, is, is multiple times more risky for Guillain-Barre. People don't realize that. So, uh, and what's your advice on flu shots uh, this season, given that we're seeing a potentially an additive effect on the healthcare system of influenza, uh, severe influenza season, and this potential COVID thing? What, what's your take on that? People need to get vaccinated still? Definitely. I Even mean, now. It's, it's, where, where are yeah. we? We're in March. So, I, yeah. I mean, you're starting to see a little bit, you know, by this time, you know, we've already had our peak of influenza. So you start to see it come down a little bit. Um, it, people will be hardened to hear that the, the two major strains that are circulating with flu, which are the so-called B Victoria strain and the H1N1 strain, are well matched in the vaccine this year. Heck so. Yeah. So we picked, I'm actually on the FDA vaccine advisory committee that picks those strains. So we already, uh, a couple weeks ago, picked the strains for next year because it's a six-month production cycle. But we we made it this year. We nailed it this year. So. <laughs> Congratulations, because so many years people complain, oh, it's a 30% effective. I'm like, Well, yeah. sometimes we missed. Two years ago, we did miss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a tough, it's a tough game to play, but you guys do the best you can. And again, your effect, it's a population health thing. You know, I, I'm going to have to figure out how we're going to title this, Paul, like population health cytokine storm or something. It, uh, <laughs> You know, so so relating to okay, so we talked about vaccines. What else is sort of on your list of things you'd want the public to know, especially our healthcare colleagues that watch the show, about the current situation? Is there anything different they should be doing with PPE? Is there anything different they should be doing with messaging? What do you think we should be doing, Paul? Well, I think I think the other thing um, in the movie Contagion, there I don't know if you ever saw that, but but there was um, there was a character played by Jude Law who argued for this sort of made up homeopathic product called Forsythia, and he he claimed that this actually helped. That you can already start to see that online. People who are claiming treatments for COVID nineteen that are false claims. The other thing is in the pharmaceutical company world, um, Gilead has a product remdesivir, which is a protease inhibitor. And this virus has a protease. So in theory, the, you, this may have an effect. And so there, we, we're generating in vitro data. We'll see to whether, whether this is of any value in vivo, meaning in people. Um, but, but we don't know that yet. And so I don't, I, I, the, it's interesting, the FDA no longer uses the term compassionate use. I don't know if you realize that. I didn't realize um, that. The companies will use it, but the, 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 the FDA doesn't use it. And the reason is, is that if a product doesn't work and or potentially could harm you, there's nothing compassionate about that. <laughs> and so I think the, the term that they now use is either extended use or expanded use. And I think people should recognize that. I think there'll be a rush and a push again for antivirals in this situation, which again may not work or may be harmful. So just be careful out there. When you have this kind of level of panic, people are willing to, to forego certain safety issues that should be thought about more rationally, independent of what's going on out there. And I worry about that. Yeah, that makes 
a lot of sense. And we're seeing it all over Facebook, these false uh, claims, you know, take a bunch of vitamin C or, you know, whatever this, you know, elderberry nonsense is that I actually researched because so many people were asking me about it. I'm going to do a show on it. Hey, t- this is not something that will help you. In. And then there's some people that are, are, are calling me asking for prescriptions for chloroquine because they read somewhere that chloroquine may be an investigative, uh, you know, malaria prophylaxis, but higher dose in South Korea and so on. And I'm like, this is just not a good idea to be hoarding chloroquine. Um, and it's on, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Wait till these things are tested. Wait yeah. till they're thoroughly, clearly tested. I mean, it, the good thing is you don't have to look to the gods to see whether or not these things work. You can we, can, we can do careful testing that people that get it or don't get it to see whether it makes a difference, but wait. And don't believe in anecdotal reports, which I've already started to hear even from people I know well who've said, look, we did this drug and it worked well, but you don't know that if it's just one person. So wait, wait to see. Yeah, and people don't understand the power of uh, statistics. So anecdote is not. Nice as a start, but it is never science in itself. And, you know, whether it's even, you know, like a Merrick protocol, vitamin C, steroid, diamond infusion for sepsis, well, study it with randomized control trials that are well designed and see if it actually works. So even small case series and retrospective case series and so on, they're not, they're not the gold standard for this. Um, I wanted to follow up on something that I, it was just been bugging me. So messenger RNA vaccination sort of approaches. What are the advantages of that? So you're injecting, where are you injecting the mRNA into cells in, in the, in the patient? And then it's, they're creating the proteins and then they're having immune response to the proteins. What's the advantage and disadvantage of that? Um, the advantage is easy to make. Uh, same thing with the DNA vaccine. It's easy to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know the protein that you you're interested in, then, then you you're, you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so you inject it into muscle cells. Often it's taken up by dendritic cells, which are cells that present antigen to the body. Um, and then it's quickly translated from messenger RNA to a protein, and then that's the protein you want. Um, the, the one thing that worries me about this is, I mean, how many messenger RNA vaccines do we currently have on our, in our armamentarium? That would be zero. Yeah, it's no. the same number of DNA vaccines that we currently have, which is why the purified protein vaccine, at least you know that platform is out there. So we have, for example, the hepatitis B vaccine is a purified protein, single protein. The human papillomavirus vaccine is a single protein. And I can tell you without fear of contradiction that the FDA is much more comfortable with platforms that already exist rather than new platforms. So they'll be uh, hopefully be much more skeptical of anything having to do with, with genetic material that is being injected into people than were we just injecting a protein. So we'll see how this plays out. But my, my, if, I, if I can get just one message out there, I know there's enormous panic associated with, with, this vaccine, with this virus. Don't sacrifice which would be the normal safety concerns that you have about any new product. I think that's brilliant, very important, because that would be the tendency. Oh, just give it to me, I'll sign up for the trial, I'll just let's go. And you gotta realize, okay, this is now, pump the brakes, right? Your absolute risk of dying from COVID is minuscule unless you're in a very high risk group, and even then, your absolute risk of dying. I tell people this all the time. There's two groups here. We have the healthcare professionals that are gonna get overwhelmed and have a very hard season, and it's gonna be stressful, and they're at high risk for exposure if they're not careful. But then you have the public, where it's like your chance of dying from this is, and you say, no, so what do you, back on this again, and again, I'm sorry to draw this out, but this is a fascinating discussion to me and I think will be for the viewers. What about these people who are making these Nassim Taleb-like predictions of the sky is absolutely falling? So if you extrapolate the doubling rate based on our current situation, we're gonna have you know, a million infections in the US and you know, X 
hundreds of thousands of deaths. How, how are you thinking about those numbers? You know, these very catastrophic scenarios of doubling time and, and exponential spread, looking at what's happened already in China and South Korea. And well, well, it didn't happen in China, right? I mean, we, we exactly. ended up having roughly 90,000 cases or something with 3,000 deaths in a population of 1.4 billion people. I mean, partly it was because of the quarantining. I think partly it was because there was a lot of natural immunity that was being induced out there. I mean, I think that's also happening in this country. When we say that there are whatever cases, 10,000 cases or something, you can assume that the number is much greater than that. I mean, I think the, den the numerator is right. I think the deaths are probably close to right, but the denominator is wrong. Yeah. Assume the denominator is wrong. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, these sort of worst case scenarios, I think, are being put out there to make sure that people stay home and, and, and don't walk outside their house. And so we're scaring them with that, um, which is good to a point. But, but I just worry that we may have uh, crossed an important line here. The other thing, just to get back to something we were talking about, and we do this as doctors, too, all the time. When someone is doing badly, um, we think we can't hurt them. You know, it's sort of like, well, give them this drug, give them this drug. But if someone's doing badly, one of three things can happen. They can do better, they can stay the same or do worse. You just want to make sure you don't take people who are going to get better or stay the same and make them worse, uh, which is always possible. So you have to be careful with, with regard to vaccines and, and drugs. Dude, I want to I wanna really emphasize that point. Because we don't, if you could clone your patient on the vent who's doing badly and have three of them and do three different interventions, I'm going to bet you that those interventions and, and the, the, the control group where you do nothing, nothing different, might actually do better a lot of the time, especially when we're talking about things like steroids, we're talking about experimental drugs, we're talking fluids. We don't realize how much harm we do because we don't have enough information because it, it's very hard to know everything. And so the house of God, Sam Shem, who's become a friend, uh, he, he says in the book, medicine, good medicine is about doing as much of nothing as possible, you know, unless you know what you're doing. And I think this is a great example. Understand it, study it, use rational thinking, and do as much of nothing as possible because it's often the safest outcome. <laughs> Although my favorite, my favorite line in that book was, show me the medical student that doesn't triple my work and I'll kiss their feet. <laughs> There's so much gold in that. And the thing is, Sam wrote a, wrote a sequel called Man's Fourth Best Hospital, which is about how his hospital, you know, has moved down in the rankings because of all the metrics and their electronic cash register, a.k.a. EHR and all this. It's really amazing. Um, let, me, let me ask um, my better here, because she is an academic chest radiologist uh, at Stanford. If she has any questions that I can fling at you. Uh, anything you're thinking? Any other questions? She said, I think I covered it all, and she thought it was a good discussion. That has never happened, Z-Pack. <laughs> I, I, she has not one-upped me for once. This is amazing. So the thing about uh, Margaret is she's better trained than me, went to better schools than me, uh, is smarter than me, is more patient than me, and she still cooks dinner for me. <laughs> it's just not fair. Life is not fair. Um, Paul, it has really, really been great getting to talk to you. you and thanks for the generosity of your time where I think we're both kind of locked down and frustrated with how we're seeing this stuff portrayed in the media and hopefully uh, people this will generate discussion if people disagree they'll weigh in and we'll get some science happening and some rational thinking any parting right. thoughts for the for the tribe no thank thanks for the opportunity I mean it's just an angst driven time this gave me a chance to have a catharsis about all this so I appreciate it thank you <laughs> me too man sometimes you know and, I, and I'll end with this it feels lonely when you're a voice 
in the wilderness shouting about something that everybody's shouting the opposite. And I think it can be very isolating, but I want to encourage people out there uh, to, to, if they have an understanding of something, to be vocal about it and let's have a discussion instead of shouting at each other and being shouted down by media and the general hysteria. So Paul, thank you for everything you do. Thank you. And uh, I'll see you next time on the show. Okay. All right, brother. Bye-bye. Thanks. ZPAC, if you like this episode, please hit share, leave a comment, um, support the show if you can, become a supporter on Facebook or YouTube, sign up for our email list on zdogmd.com, and we out. Peace.